0: Last week, we started in this series with Psalm 8, and what we saw in Psalm 8 is the psalmist said that God's glory is everywhere, and that godly people are those who look up and they see the glory of God, and they are in awe, and they are in awe because God cares for them. They look at all that God has made. They look at the greatness of God, and they say, who am I? that God is mindful of me? And who am I that God cares for me? And, and what that leads them to do is it leads them to praise and pray to God. And the psalmist said, like a baby, like a baby whose strength is that it instinctively knows to cry out to its caretaker and to praise its caretaker when the when the person that the baby trusts meets its needs, that that's the strength of a child, that the strength of the people of God is to be dependent upon God. Is to know that we need Him. To know that He is great and He is mindful of us and He cares for us and it is instinctive that as a people we cry out to Him. We pray and we praise And that is when we are the strongest as a people. When we learn how to be bold and unashamed in praying to God, depending on God, and praising God. When we're together and in the world, in the marketplace. The more we learn to be bold in our prayers, bold in our praise, the stronger we are. The world will shame us for that. There will be in us or they will be coming to us shame from a world that sees us. They will call us weak. They will call us foolish because we depend on a God, because we express ourselves and we, we do so in a way that might bring ridicule because we thank God and we praise Him. And sometimes we may do that in ways that puts ourselves out there and we may feel a lo- little uncomfortable and people may poke fun at us for that. But no matter what the world says, the Bible says that's when you're you're strongest, when you depend upon Him. And I wanted to go back over that a little bit because I think you're going to see some of the same themes this morning in Psalm 138. In your notes, if you're a note-taker and and got one of the preaching guides this morning on the right-hand side, let's start with this very top statement from Psalm 138. The godly are active in giving thanks to God. And they are always seeking to increase in sincere worship. The godly are those who are active in giving thanks to God. This is how the psalmist starts out. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. God, The godly people are active in that. We avoid the trap of always just praying for our needs and our requests and failing and forgetting to be thankful to God for who He is, for what He has done, for His concern and care for us. We are a people willing, ready, able to give God thanks privately and publicly. And what we're doing is we want to do this with our whole heart, not half-heartedly, not just a little But what we want is we want our entire heart to be captured in love for God and thankfulness to Him for what He has done. So we are always seeking to increase in a wholehearted thankfulness to God. Sincere worship. We don't want to just open the Bible and and read mindlessly. We don't want to just pray powerlessly. We don't want to just come and sing but not think about what we're doing. We want what is happening to come from our hearts. If we serve one another, we want to do it with sincere worship. And if we're not there, we're trying to get there. We're seeking to get there. We're praying about getting there. And we're trusting that we will. John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 5, He said, whoever keeps God's Word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. The love of God, the love that we have for God, the love of God that we have for other people, it is something that is being perfected in us. We are growing in it. As we try to keep His Word, as we try to give thanks and praise, and as we try to sing and pray and learn and serve, The love of God is growing in His people. It's being perfected in us. So the godly seek to be thankful. Being thankful, by the way, is such a powerful tool. It keeps us from bitterness. It wars against unforgiveness. It helps us to not be critical. It helps us to not be afraid. When we remember what God has done, when we talk about what God has done, when we meditate on what God has done, it does something to us. It does something in us. It it would be good for us as believers to practice not criticizing, not, not wringing our hands in anxiety, not lashing out in anger, but starting with being thankful toward God and for all of His gifts. And that's where the psalmist starts off. What is he thankful for in your notes? Number one, he is thankful for the unchanging, enduring love of God. He says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love. The godly are thankful for the unchanging, enduring love of God. Look at me for a moment. Do you really know how much God loves you. Do you ever stop and think about that? Is that, is it just a phrase? God is love? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I know God loves me. No, no. Do you stop and just think about how much the God of this vast universe is mindful of you and cares for you and you are the object of His love in all His creation. And not you as just a nameless, faceless person, one of the crowd that He loves, but He knows you by name. He has called you by name. His love is on you. You. And what difference does that make for you? It should make all the difference. God has withheld nothing from you in His love for you. All the way to the life of His Son that He gave over to torture and death and wrath so that you would never have to face that judgment. And if He loves you that much, the Word of God says, will He withhold anything from you? Because He's gave you everything. He loves you. You, we said this last week, you occupy the mind of God. Give Him thanks for His unchanging, enduring love. He does not love you more when you get it right. He does not love you less when you get it wrong. Because His love for you was never based on what you do. If it was based on what you do or I do, we would never have had His love. It's enduring. It's steadfast. It does not change. God loves you. Be thankful for that. And also... In your notes, be thankful for His faithfulness to you. The psalmist says that again. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why are you sitting in this room? If you, right now, if the state of your life, of your heart is that you cling to Christ, you look to Christ, you believe in Christ, why is that true of you? Why is that true of you? It is true of you because God has been faithful to you. You did not love Him first. You don't love God because you woke up one day and just decided in a vacuum to love God. The Bible is very clear. He loved you first. You, if you, are faithful to God, it is only because He was faithful to you first. You are among His people. Because he has chosen to be faithful to you. And he will always be faithful to you. He will not stop being faithful to you. In the midst of your trials and difficulties, it is not a sign that he has stopped his faithfulness. He is still working. His faithfulness to you will not cease. On the day you call to Him, He will answer you. Have you ever wondered about that when you prayed? God, when are you going to answer? The psalmist says it is the very day you pray. The moment you pray, the day you pray, He answers. Now you may say, well, I haven't seen the answer. That may mean just that. It's not yet visible to you. It may mean that His answer is different from what you wanted it to be, but He has answered you. And look at what the psalmist says, On the day I called you, you answered me. And what? My strength of soul you increased. When you pray, when you call out to God, He strengthens your soul. It may be that He strengthens your soul by immediately giving you what you have asked for. It may mean that his answer is, wait, be patient, and then he strengthens your soul so that you can wait and be patient. The promise you have is he knows what you need. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, in the Holman Christian Standard, I like how it is written, but in the ESV it says, the spirit of the... The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. I think the way the Holman puts it is that that God's light is like a lamp into our spirit. He sees our spirit. God knows what is in you, and he knows what you need, and he strengthens you when you call out to him. Sometimes what we think we need is for him to take the burden, the trial, the difficulty, the thing we're praying for. And what God knows that we need is actually that thing. But He's doing something in the middle of it. But He strengthens your soul. He is always faithful to you. He always answers when you call to Him. Don't just wait for the moment where He answers and gives the miracle and gives the breakthrough. Praise Him the moment you pray. Be thankful the moment you pray that He is answering you right then and strengthening your soul right then. Don't wait to see what you are dreaming to see. Thank Him as you pray that He's already working. Why else are we thankful for Him, the people of God? We're thankful for His authority. The psalmist says, "'I bow down toward Your holy temple.'" And give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name. And he goes on in verse 4 and 5 to say, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. All of human history is barreling toward a point where all the kings of the earth will bow down to God. And sing His praise. All of humanity, all of human history is barreling to a point where all who live in the kingdom of God will praise Christ, will praise His name. You serve the one who has won and who will win in the end. You serve and praise the One who has authority over everything. He has exalted His name in all the earth. There is no name above His name. There is no authority above His authority. There is no King that will not stand before Him in judgment or bow down before Him in worship. Thank Him for His authority. Thank Him for His ability to decree And to overcome. And be thankful for His commands and His promises. Be thankful for His commands and His promises. Again, the psalmist says in verse 2, You have exalted above all things Your name and Your word. Your word. God speaks. The God of the universe speaks to us. The God of the universe speaks to His people. Do you know that in the Old Testament, the pagans in the Old Testament, they were so confused by what their gods wanted that many of them ended up sacrificing their own children. Because they didn't know what the gods wanted. There was trouble in the world. There was difficulty in the land. They wanted to appease the gods. They didn't know what they wanted. And so they went to the extreme of sacrificing their own children, hoping that's what the gods wanted. The law of the Lord was grace to the people of Israel. Because He spoke to them and said, Here's what I expect. Here's what I want. Love me with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Every other law I give you rolls up to these. God speaks. His Word has been exalted above all things. Yes, you will be ridiculed for believing that He has secured for you a book of written words and prophecies and commands and promises, but this Word will last beyond the people who ridicule it. This Word became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us the glory of God, the person of Jesus. We are thankful for His Word. Look in First John, again, chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. Actually, I'll, I'm going to back up one verse. To verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. How do you know when you really love God? How do you know when the love of God is being perfected in you? You are so thankful that He has spoken to you. You are thankful for His promises, but you're also thankful for His commands. And you don't find His commands to be a burden. You, you may find it difficult to obey, but you don't say, Oh, this is so burdensome to have to do this. No, you are able to say, I delight that God has given me His Word. I delight that He has given me His promises. I delight that He has given me His commands. And it is not a burden to follow Him. The godly are active in giving thanks. We want to sincerely worship. We are thankful for His unchanging love. We're thankful for His faithfulness. We're thankful for His authority. We're thankful for His commands and His promises. And agape, in your notes, this is why I believe with my whole heart that the Lord's Day gathering should be our joyful priority. This is why I believe with all my heart that the Lord's Day gathering, what we're doing right now, should be our joyful priority. Now, you may say, where did that come from? Why, why are we switching over to talking about the gathering of the believers? First of all, the word this, what I mean by that, this, I'm talking about the first three verses. I believe everything, that whole picture that we see. God, I give you thanks with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name. For your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called you, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. I believe the psalmist is speaking of that within community. The community of the saints. The community of the people of God. Look at Psalm 111. If you'll just keep your, your finger there and your, in the Bible and switch over for just a moment. Psalm 111. Look at the very first verse of Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord. Sound familiar? With my whole heart. Sound familiar? In the company of the upright in the congregation. I I don't mean that we don't do this in our own private lives. Certainly we are supposed to. But what I am saying to you is I think when the psalmist wrote this, he had the community in mind. Israel was not an individualistic-minded people. They were a community-minded people. God had saved a people, a community. If you read the Psalms, when the psalmist writes and they are isolated from the people of God, the tenor and tone of the psalm is usually sorrow and grief and frustration and a longing to be back among the people of God and community. They speak of the joy of the assembly of the congregation of the community of the saints. This picture, this picture of giving thanks and praise and being strengthened by God, I believe the psalmist and the writers had in mind the whole assembly of God. I think we are so blessed. To live where we live. And this country has afforded us a lot of freedoms that the rest of the world doesn't know. But we are a people that, since the birth of this country, have idolized individualism. And in some ways, that really works for us and it really helps us. But when it comes to our religion, it doesn't always. Because we're saturated with the idea that we live individualistic, believing lives and that the commands of God are primarily for us as an individual, and then we have the good thing of getting together in community and doing it together. And I think the Bible is flipped from that. I think God writes about the people, the body of Christ, the community of the saints... And from the community and from the gathering of the believers, we are strengthened in our individual lives. So that there is never any doubt in your mind. Your pastor believes this gathering should not be optional. I think you can take that, a leader can take that to a place of legalism. And you can start saying, well, you're, you're not pleasing God and you're not loving God the way that you should. Your heart is stray from Him if you don't come to church every Sunday. And I'm not, I'm not going to say that. But I am going to say to you, I don't think in the writing of God, in the mind of God, in the heart of God, that the gathering of His corporate church... Is merely an optional thing. I believe he's commanded it for our good. I'm not going to call you up and say that most of the time. I guess I'm just going to say it now. Because I don't want you to come here out of guilt. I don't want you to come here because as I've heard some people say, and we'll get one of those texts from David on Sunday evening, I want it to be your joy to be here. But I want it to be your priority. I am not speaking that as a church, It's we keep attendance every week and that perfect attendance is what is asked of us. But I do believe this should be priority for us. This should be priority in our schedule. I don't think this gathering of believers should be what we do if we've had a pretty good week. If we haven't, aren't too tired from other things. If we haven't had so much going on. I think the priority of the Lord's Day gathering should be utmost in how we live. I think we should see it that way. But I also want us to see the joy in it. Why it is so good for us to be together. Why it is so good for this to be part of our Every week's schedule. Why? God has designed it that way. In your notes, one, we gather to make our diverse offerings of thanks. We gather to make our diverse offerings of thanks. The first thing I believe we should think about when we think about the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day is not what I'm going to get out of it. I think the first thing we should think is I'm going to make an offering to God. I'm going to offer to God my thanksgiving, and I'm going to do it in the congregation of the believers. I'm going to make him an offering. And those offerings are diverse. Look at at verse 1 and 2 again. I sing your praise, I bow down toward your temple. If you were here last week, that language should sound familiar. Some of us, we are wired, we are gifted that like our offering of thanks our base way if we just give ourselves to freedom we're going to sing loud we're going to shout shout we're going to clap that's that's who we are and if we're not doing that it's because we're holding ourselves back some of us we are if we're sincerely worshiping we're going to bow down we may kneel we may get on our face we may lift up our eyes and our minds may go to the Lord. We're going to be quiet because that's how God has designed us. We're not aiming for how you worship except sincerely. But the strength of this church should be all of the people coming to make their offering in whatever form God has designed you to make it. Which, by the way, may change as you change. So, if there are people here who shout and clap and praise, those of you who don't, be thankful for them. If there are people here who are quiet, reflective, they bow down, don't shame them in that, be thankful for them, if you're more exuberant. We want diverse gifts to be offered here it's how it's how peter put it to the church 1st peter chapter 4 verse 10 as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's various grace yes i know it's talking there primarily about spiritual gifts but that goes into how god has designed you it's various it's different the way that we do church in america is all the quiet people get together And they do quiet church. And all the loud exuberant people get together and they do loud and exuberant church. God has made a body that is diverse. So we're not going to try to be a quiet church or a loud church. We just want to sincerely worship and have the freedom to do that. We come together. Because if you're left on your own, you're just going to be you, which is great. But you need to be around people who are not like you. You need to come and make your offering among the congregation where it is diverse. Secondly, we gather to give our bold testimony to all who watch. We're still thinking here about giving, not about just receiving from the Lord. We're going to make our offering when we come together. We're going to give our bold testimony. Look at this phrase. Verse 1, "'I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise.'" What does that mean? Some people believe what is meant here is that among the pagan nations, the people of God gather and they worship. And the pagan gods that David didn't believe really existed, but among those people that are worshiping those false gods, the people of God show true worship. And I will say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about when the church is gathered together and the Spirit of God is moving and there are gifts in the church, praise and prayers and prophecy, that if there is an outsider among you, they will see those things, hear those things, they will hear prophecy and they will be cut to their heart and they will say, God is really among this people. And be saved. That happens in the assembly of the believers. When we gather, this is a testimony to a world. A watching world. That we are the people of God. Worshipping privately in our homes doesn't have that same testimony. But what if God's means something different? God's little g, that word showed up in Psalm 8, the same word in the Hebrew, and it was talking about angels. I won't go very far down this road, because it is a bit mystical, and the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. But what if our worship is witnessed by angels? What if, like in... 1 Peter chapter 1 where it says angels look at the church and they look at the gospel and they long to understand it. That tells me they see the church. They see what the church is doing. What if our worship as a people is a testimony to those angelic beings? They see the people of God and they see our worship and they are awed by that. And what if... It's not just angelic beings. God's spiritual forces are talked about in Ephesians 6, not just as good, but as evil. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces in high places. Ephesians chapter 3 talks about how the church was designed by God to be a testimony to spiritual forces of His grace. In his mercy. What if those forces that war against our souls are witness to the praise and the worship of the people of God? And it is our strength to come together in the midst of that spiritual warfare and worship and praise together. What if? Those spiritual forces want to do everything to keep us from the gathering of the believers because we're going through a rough time and a trial, and we're tired and we're hurt and we're suffering. And God is saying, You should be among the congregation in those times and praise God in the midst of it. And finally, we gather to receive strength for life and ministry. Again, verse 3 shows us that. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. Does that increasing not happen among the people of God? In Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus looks at Peter and He says to him a few things. He says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat which shows God has all authority and a request in some form had to be made and God was going to allow Peter to go through what he did. doesn't mean that God caused him to do it, but he was going to have an allowance there. And Jesus says, Satan is asked to do this And then Jesus says, and I have prayed that you will not fail. And he finishes up the statement by saying, when when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Jesus shows three things there. You're going to go through a trial. You will not fail because I will not let you. When you are restored, take your restoration and go strengthen the church. When we come together, God strengthens us by His Spirit. His Spirit is multifaceted. He works through the praise of, our, of the people. He works through the Word of God. And He works through each one of us that has the Spirit in us. We need the strength of God that is in the entire church. When we're suffering, when we're hurting... When we're in the midst of prosperity, we need the Spirit that is in each of us in this church to strengthen each other. When we are cut off from that, when we aren't living into that, when we we remove ourselves from it, we are removing ourselves from an avenue that God has designed for us to be strengthened. We say, I've I've, I've had... It's just... I'm suffering so much right now. It's been so hard. God is designed for you to be encouraged and equipped by the people around you. Which is why Satan wants to cut you off from the gathering. This isn't the the entirety of the church. We believe in, in gathering in smaller groups. We believe in coming together for prayer. We believe in doing ministry and I, I I'm not going to plot to uh, to put the different activities of God against each other, but I am going to tell you this: my experience as a pastor is the power the strength of corporate worship and prayer and study fuels fuels the life of the church and the ministry of the church. It fuels the small groups. There's been a lady in our church the last few weeks who's went out, put on, a, put on our church app in one of the groups that she's in. Hey, I'm going to be at this place on Monday morning at this time. If anyone wants to come and pray and talk about the sermon and, and, and what God is doing in our church, come pray with me. That is birthed out of corporate worship. This week, Miss Jackie led a team of people. I had my first opportunity to go to the, the rehab center in Trustful. I cannot begin to tell you how blessed I was by that. And I saw God move there that was birthed out of corporate worship. We are strengthened. I don't know how many of you would know this, but Sam, this week, has been essentially crippled. I'm not being funny. Starting Monday, Monday night, he had a, what he has said is the most difficult, intense pain of his entire life sprung up in his back and he has essentially spent the entire week laying down. That's all he's been able to do is just lay down. And the only time he's been up is to go to the doctor to get MRIs and things to try to figure out what was going on. That's why he wasn't up here this morning leading prayer and worship. But he's in the back. Because he wanted to be. Not because we guilted him into it. Not because he's a pastor. The prevailing wisdom would have been, dude, take a day and just rest. You, you got your medical treatment this week. You, you, they, they've done the stuff that they've said is going gonna, is gonna to help rest. No one's going to think a thing about it. I just want to read you quickly what he wrote to the worship team this morning in our church app. I wanted to let you know why I'm trying so hard to make it. It's not because I think y'all need me or you're incapable. You've proven that's not the case many times over. It's not because I feel like I need to be leading worship. And it's not because I feel obligated to come to church. I want to be there with the body of Christ. I feel like I'm in a beginning stage of understanding a new layer of the beauty of Jesus when His people gather that can in no way be witnessed, experienced, or replicated outside of the gathering in person together. I don't fully even know what I mean by this yet, but there is something truly mystical about the body being the body of Jesus when we gather. And I want to be there to be part of His body. Just like our personal bodies are weaker when a part of it isn't functionally present, we are all weaker when we're not present together in Christ. I don't mean just show up and you've unlocked an achievement level. We come with what we have to bring in Jesus, whatever hunger level, whatever measure of faith, whatever morsel of bread to share with another in Jesus' name. And He is the God who takes our loaves and fish and feeds us to overflowing through the power of His Holy Spirit working in and through us. Apart from Yahweh, we can do nothing. When we abide in Him, our spirits connect in Christ in a mysterious way that brings us strength, an encouragement, a direction, a vision, a power, an instruction, wisdom, and a level of intimacy with each other through Him that cannot be attained on our own. We are the body of Christ when we gather and it is a beautiful thing. So although I won't be with you at practice or on stage, if the Lord is withing, willing, I will be worshiping right along with you in person as we become the body of Christ at agape to the glory of His name. I read that and I was, I was like, this is, this is the sermon. This is what God is doing. I don't say any of that to elevate Sam. I'm about to show you why that would be really bad for him. But the Spirit of God is doing something. Agape. Next week, next month, next year, we need to build on the foundation that is joyful priority of the gathering of the saints. Let me end with some things that I would want you to believe out of this psalm. And they are a whole sermon in themselves and Maybe I'll talk about it on the podcast this week because I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. But, verses 7 and 8 are filled. I would ask you to believe these promises as a church. One, live humbly, believing the promise that God will be your help. Live humbly, Believing the promise that God will be your help. Verse 6, Though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. The word regard there means He knows. He knows intimately and personally those who are humble. Those who are prideful, those who depend on themselves, those who think they have much to give and nothing to learn, nothing to gain from God or His people. The Bible says that, that distances God from them. And if they stay in that state, they will be distanced from Him for all of eternity. The pathway to God is to know you need God and humble yourself before Him. I put there, repent, confess, and serve. We humble ourselves when we repent of our sins and we look to Jesus to save us. In in John 17, which isn't in your notes, but in John 17, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, he He's praying and He says, Father, the hour has come. This, this is, I believe, in the garden as He's about to be arrested. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You since you have given Him authority over all flesh. And here's the authority. To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. If you want heaven and you don't want to know God, there's something amiss. Eternal life is not a place, it's a person. Eternal life is to know God. To humble yourself and repent of your sins. Is that hard? Yes. Does that mean you have to lay down some things that are really important to you? Yes. But in your humility, you gain God. And then you confess your sins throughout your whole life. You confess how much you need Him and how much you need to be like Jesus. And you humble yourself by serving others the way Christ serves them. So believe His promises. Live humbly. Humble yourself. Say to yourself, when yourself says, it's hard, I don't want to do that, say to yourself, you get God. God will help you. Secondly, live courageously. Because God will overwhelm your troubles. Look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life and stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. In this world, we will have trouble. The life you live, you will live in the midst of trouble. There will be difficulties all around you and sometimes those troubles will enter into your life. Here is the promise, God will preserve your life. If you're being attacked, He will raise His hand to deliver you. Live courageously. Don't live fearfully. Don't live in anxiety. Here's your courage. God will overwhelm your troubles. If you look to Him, your troubles will never overwhelm you. He will overwhelm your troubles. Thirdly, live hopefully. Because God will fulfill His purposes for you. You are His workmanship. Live hopefully. Live with hope. Look at verse 8. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Underline and highlight that and note that it doesn't say the Lord will fulfill my purposes for me. If you are clinging to Christ, will you die before God has fulfilled His purposes for you? No. If you are clinging to Christ... Have you messed up so bad that He will not fulfill His purposes for you? No. If you are clinging to Christ, are you of such a lowly and poor estate that He will not fulfill His purposes for you? No. You're actually in the best possible position you could be. Sin is deadly. Don't hear me say that. It's not. I believe the gifts that God has given me, the Bible says, are irrevocable. God doesn't take His gifts. Can I disqualify myself from certain positions in the church? I think I can. But over all things, even over the deadliness of sin, even over our poor estate, even over death and sickness and trouble itself, stands the sovereignty of God. He will fulfill His purposes for you. So, have hope. If God has purposed it for you, you will have it. If He has not purposed it for you, then you might not. But don't fret over that. Your life will be filled. Your hope is you are the workmanship of God. Ephesians 2. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that you would walk in. God will fulfill those purposes.